0: Decisions, decisions, decisions. Do you realize that the average adult makes 35,000 conscious decisions each and every day? 35,000. The average child makes about 3,000 decisions a day. That tells me a couple things. Number one, we boss them around an awful lot. They have no choice. (laughs) And secondly, it's exhausting being a grown-up. <laughs> 35,000 decisions a day. Some of our decisions are good decisions. Some decisions, nah, not so good. Let me show you some not-so-good decisions, okay? Here's one. A guy decides he's going he's gonna to chain up his bike or fix his bike to a post. Do you notice anything? Somebody could easily lift that bike right up off that post right away and and they'd they'd have a lock with it too. How about this one? This is a guy that there's an explosion taking place. I think it might be like an, an eruption of some sort. And he thought, what a great time to take a selfie. Yeah, not a good decision. How about another bad decision? Here's some guys. Yeah, I'll let that sink in a little bit. These guys are in a hot tub and obviously the pump on the hot tub quit working so they said dying what can we do to make this thing work and so they put an outboard motor in the hot tub (laughs) crank that baby up and just sit back and enjoy the bubbles yeah not a good decision some bad bad things could happen there how about this next one here's a guy It's it's on a skateboard if you can see that and he thought wouldn't this be cool if I could jump almost all the way over this, this fire? And I'm guessing he probably jumped almost all the way over that fire. And uh, yeah, that's not going to turn out good. But this is my favorite one. No, that, that, this is, this is, this, the next one's my favorite. But this one right here, the cat's saying, boy, I'm hungry. Now see, all you cat lovers, I'm going to tell you, a dog would never do that. A dog is a whole lot smarter. Here's my favorite one. Here's a couple guys that say, let's look at some lions. Wouldn't it be great to get close to lions? What should we do? Let's dress up like a zebra. And so uh, they decide they're going to dress up like a zebra to uh, notice the lions, and the lions happen to notice them too. See, there's some bad decisions that people make. I know you don't make any bad decisions, but I've made a couple bad ones in my life. But really, the decisions you make determine what your your life is going to be like. It determines the trajectory of your life. And not only your life, but the lives of those around you as well. Let me give you an example. Many moons ago, my brother decided he wanted to get a job. So he got a job at Sandy's Drive-In on McKinley, right across from Bethel College. Now it's Arby's. But he got a job there, which led me to do the same thing and get a job at Sandy's Drive-In on McKinley across from Bethel. Which led me to meet a beautiful, blonde-haired Bethel co-ed named Missy Steele. Which led me to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Which led me to begin serving in the church as a layman. Lots of churches. Including Gospel Center for (laughs) quite a bit of that time. Which led me into the pastorate which led me back here today. So if you've got a bone to pick with me being here today, blame my brother for getting that job <laughs> at Sandy's Driving. You see that the decisions we make will impact us and the people around us. Today is a day for decisions. The decision you des- determine to make today or determine not to make today could impact the rest of your life. So as we make decisions, it's my prayer that you'll make wise decisions. But Let's begin by praying. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us. Now I pray that you would just open up your word to, to our hearts, that we might see what you would have us to see and do what you would have us to do. In your name we pray, amen. In 1999, I was part of 70,000 men who went to the Silver Dome in Detroit to see the promise to be part of the Promise Keepers conference there, and there I met. There I heard a message that really did change my life. You know, he had some most impact messages. This is one that blessed me. It was by Dave Wilkinson, the guy who is who who founded uh, Walk Through the Bible. He wrote books like Prayer of Jabez, uh, Secrets of the Vine. Uh, the life God rewards. And he shared a message there that really has impacted me greatly. And it's a, it's a story of three chairs. And, and in order to... And what I'd like to do today, I'd like to share my version of Wilkinson's message. So for a story on three chairs, what am I going to have to have? Three chairs. Ladies... Ladies, come on, come on, come on, right over here. The other two obviously didn't show up. (laughs) I am going to so burn those two. You want to carry another one? We need three chairs, obviously. So I'll put one here. You can put one right there. Yeah, we'll put one over here. Thank you. Give her a hand since she was the only one who showed up. Thank you. He shared this message of three chairs, and it was so simple that 70,000 men at the end of the time was raising up their chair, screaming. It was crazy. It was great. In the first chair, we find Joshua. Now, we all remember Joshua. We first met him as a spy that went into the Promised Land when, when to scope out the Promised Land for their possible habitation there. The entire generation of Moses and Joshua had been raised in slavery. And you can remember they call out to God for deliverance, and, and God delivered them. They had seen that, and they'd, they had seen God send plagues upon Egypt and uh, that, that devastated Egypt, but then spared, he spared the Israelites of the impact of that wrath. They had seen God part the Red Sea for them to walk through on dry ground and then drown the entire Egyptian army. They remembered what it was like to be hungry in the wilderness and how God heard their prayer and sent Food in the form of manna, some bready substance or something that could be used in a variety of different ways. He also sent quail for them to eat. They remembered what it was like to be thirsty in the desert, not having a clean water to drink. And So God instructed uh, Moses to take his staff and strike a rock with it, of all things. And water poured out of that rock enough to satisfy the thirst of all of the Israelites as well as their livestock. See, they remembered those things. They remembered when they were attacked by the Amalekites, uh, a well-trained savage army through whose land they had to pass. And as long as Moses extended his hands towards heaven, God blessed Israel and allowed them to prevail over the, uh, the Amalekites. But when his hands dropped, the Amalekites surged forward and were able to take advantage of that and so they remembered how Aaron and her supported his arms for the entire day so that that uh, Israel could defeat the Amalekites and so as they, as they they had seen over and over again how God had blessed them and, and answered their prayers and used them and they, it took them right to the edge of the promised land and then God instructed Moses to send in 12 spies one from each tribe and you can recall how 10 of those spies came back with a fearful, faithless report of great giants and walled cities and the inability they had to defeat the like of that. But you can also recall how, how Joshua came back with a report. He, and he had seen all of the giants and all of the walled cities, but he says, we can surely take this land. So because of his faith, God had promised Joshua's, had promised that Joshua's entire generation was going to die in the desert, but Joshua and Caleb, that other faithful spy, they would live to go, go into the promised land. So we see that in, jo- in uh, the 24th chapter of Joshua, the passage that Ken read, "This great leader is approaching his 110th birthday. And just before he was was going to uh, send them out to their assigned lands to take uh, control of it, he calls the people together for one last message. And so he says in in verses 14 and 15, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's the attitude, that's the determination, that's the goal of the person who sits in the first chair. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. They had seen God move, and the memory of, their, of, and of this miraculous power was seared into their hearts and minds. They could do nothing less. They could do nothing else but state, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The word that best describes the person who sits in the first chair is commitment. And this person possesses convictions. But the generation that followed Joshua and Caleb had not seen the miracles of God. Maybe as children, they had been told about them or they, had, had, they, they may have seen some of them, but it didn't impact their lives the way it had their parents' lives. So this next generation is, is described in, in Joshua 24, 31, where it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. In the King James, the word translated experienced, is translated known. This implies that they may not have seen those miracles, but they knew about the miracles. As they grew up in these God-fearing homes, the talk around the dinner table was what God had done for them, what had God done in their lives for their, for their nation, for their people. They had not experienced God, but they believed in God. And this is a result of growing up in a home that declares, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But they also heard the call of society on their lives. Society around them caused them to mix their allegiance. They tended to blend the two messages together. God was part of their lives, but he was not the only part, and he wasn't maybe the greatest influencer in their lives. So where the first chair is characterized by uh, commitment, the second chair is characterized by compromise. Commitment does not occupy their lives. The person person who, who sits in this chair has beliefs, but not conviction. This takes us to the third chair. In Judges 2, verses 10 through 12, we read the sad description of those people who sit in the third chair. So says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of Egypt they followed and worshipped various gods and the peoples around them, of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. These are the people who sit in this third chair. And the people who sit in the third chair are the people who lived during the time of the judges. You remember the, if you've read the book of Judges, you know how that turns out. You can see that their lives are, are are characterized by conflict. where these people have commitment and these people have compromise. These people have conflict. And if, if, you've, if you've read the book of Judges, you see the constant cycle of conflict that happens in Judges. There's disobedience to God and then judgment by God, then crying out to God because of this judgment that God sent upon them. And then repentance and return to God. And then the peace with God. And then sadly again, disobedience to God. If you read Judges, you'll see this happening over and over and over and over again. A sad, sad cycle of sin. It was a tragic time for the people of Israel. So here we have conviction. Here we have beliefs. And here we have opinions. The person who sits in this chair lives by opinions, his own opinions and the opinions of society around him. Where the first chair has firsthand experience with God and the second chair only has secondhand experience with God, the third chair has, has no acknowledge or experience with God. Later in Scripture, we see this concept repeated again in the lives of King David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. King David was not a perfect man. We know that he sinned greatly, but he had a heart for God. In fact, he's called a man after God's own heart. He had personally experienced the power of God in his life He had seen the wonders of God's creation as a a young shepherd boy. He He had been spared during attacks by lions and bears and King Saul and mighty enemy armies. God had allowed David to expand his kingdom. But David's life was characterized by a whole heart for God and confession of sins. And his motivation was to please God and the question he asked is what does God think he was fully committed and he occupied the first chair then came Solomon he grew up in David's home he surely had heard his father's exploits he even asked for wisdom over all other blessings but Solomon was heavily entrenched in the world he was half hearted for God He lived a life of compromise. His motivation was to please people, and his question was, what do people think? And Solomon occupied the second chair. And so into this compromised home comes Rehoboam, where his father was the wisest man who ever lived. Rehoboam rejected wise counsel. And because of that, he... He caused civil war within Israel and a splitting of that nation. Where David had a whole heart for God and Solomon was half hearted for God, Rehoboam had no heart for God at all. His question is what? His question that that dominated his life is what do I think? What do I want to do? He completely shut God out of the equation. David wanted to build a temple to honor God. Solomon wanted to build a palace to honor his position. Rehoboam wanted to build an empire to honor himself. But without God, he failed miserably. Rehoboam occupied that third chair. So those are two examples from God's word, but what does that mean for us today? When someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, an amazing thing in their lives take place. Someone, they they leave that life of sin, they leave that life and and they come to Jesus and they're amazingly transformed. They turn from their sins, they seek God's forgiveness, the trajectory of their life is completely changed. That happened for me and it's probably happened for many of you. We're able to sing... What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I can remember after I accepted Christ as my Savior, I I went and hung out with some of my old friends. They said, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And I was able to tell man, there's nothing wrong with me. Now everything's right with me. But see, a change took place, a notable change, a significant change. When, when you have that change in your life, everything, is, everything changes. Everything is new. You're almost euphoric in your life. We tend to commit ourselves to God, His work, His word, the Christian lifestyle, and, and God's purposes. They're, they're totally committed, they're the people that are in church every time the door is open. They love to be in the middle of what God is doing. The Apostle Paul calls these people spiritual. And they occupy the first chair. But these first chair dwellers, they have children. And children are raised in these Christ-centered homes. They see their parents' commitment. They receive Jesus as their Savior. But they don't remember a time when Jesus was not the primary force in their home. They're the people that say, Well, I've always been a Christian, but they may have never experienced the power of God in their lives. They may have seen the p- power of God in their parents' lives, but they've never personally experienced that life changing power. They claim to have the same truth, to believe the same truths as someone in that first chair. They may follow the same Christian rituals and practices as a person in the first chair. And they usually have the best of intentions. But often, inconsistency and, and instability mark their course. They may know Jesus as their Savior, but He's not their Lord. And they're pulled away by the things of this world. The Apostle Paul calls these people carnal, not lost but missing out on all the blessings God has for them because of their allegiance to the world and they occupy that second chair. And they have children. And these kids grow up in a home that is that is compromised. Their parents behave one way on Sunday. They go to church. They carry their Bibles. They give to the offering. They may even serve in some capacity. But there's no carryover from Sunday to the rest of the week. The way they behave on Sunday does not impact the way they behave on Monday through Saturday. That facade that they put on for church vanishes on the way home from church. The Bible goes back up on the shelf, never to be touched or or read in the week ahead. The message the pastor shared has no impact on the way they speak, the way they live, the way they conduct themselves. So these people, these children, grow up conflicted. They're not blind. They see the hypocrisy in their parents' lives, and they want no part of it. They don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior because what can Jesus do for them? Didn't do much for their parents. And so they rebel. They want no part of the church because the church is full of. What is it? What's the word? Hypocrites. That's what they believe. So they settle into that third chair. And it's, that's what Paul calls natural people. They're just natural. If they're going to have any experience. Spiritual experience it's not going to be in church. They're more susceptible to. Other religions and even sects and cults or causes. They may be the ones that align themselves with Mother Earth. Save the trees. That's their religion. So God speaks of these three individuals, these three chair dwellers. In Revelation 3, 15 through 16, we read, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Of these three chairs, which one would be the hot chair? The first chair would be the hot chair, okay? Of these three chairs, which one would be the cold chair? The third chair. So what does that leave for the lukewarm? The second chair. The first chair is actively serving God. The third chair is the target of our evangelistic efforts. The second chair, though, is in a dangerous position because of their complacency, their self-satisfaction, their false security. And God says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That doesn't sound good. In another translation, it says vomit instead of spit. When someone vomits something out of their mouth, it indicates they're sick. Do lukewarm Christians make God sick? God continues to love that person. Jesus died for that person. But God can't use that person. He has no need for that person, and that's a dangerous place to be. Now, God can use the committed person in the first chair to build his church, to, to build other people up, to disciple, to evangelize the world. And God uses the people in the third chair to keep the people in the first chair busy. He loves those people and he wants to know everybody. He wants those people to know that Jesus died for him. So they're important to God as well. But these people in the second chair. God says I'm about to spit you out. I'm about to vomit you up. Where do you find yourself today? Maybe you find yourself in this first chair, completely sold out to God. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He governs your life. He determines what you do and don't do. He leads you and guides you and blesses you. If that's the case, then you need to recommit yourself to all the things God has called you to do. Recommit yourself to loving Him, to loving, loving others, to being in His Word, taking that Word and putting it into practice, and reaching out to the community, to your neighbors, to your families, to your co-workers with the love of Jesus. Determine to go deeper with God in every area of your life. If today you find yourself in this third chair, you need to Repent. You need to confess your sins and through the blood of Jesus find new life. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God loves you right where you are, but he doesn't want to leave you right where you are. He has a plan for your life, and it begins with confessing your sins and accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're in the third chair, that's what you need today. And if you confess your sins, repent of your sins, God will forgive your sins and wash you clean. God will move you today from the third chair to the first chair. But I believe the person sitting in the second chair may be in the most dangerous place of all. Speaking of these second chair lukewarm Christians, Jesus says in in uh, Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. People in the second chair have this false sense of security. They believe of themselves that they're wealthy and in need of nothing. But God looks at them and says, oh, man, you're so wrong. You are so wrong. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You think you have everything, but you've got nothing. You're lukewarm. So what are you to do? Today, if you find yourself in the second chair, never having experienced the power of God in your life, then you need to reevaluate your position in Christ. You must recognize that salvation is not the finish line for the Christian walk, it's the start line. You accept Jesus Christ, and there's a long way to go between that and the, your eventual glorification in, in heaven. So Jesus continues. In Revelation 3, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Jesus doesn't say work harder. He doesn't say clean yourself up. He says buy from me refined gold, not the corrupted gold of the compromised attitude that you have, the compromise your compromised life that you live with this world, but pure gold from God. Then you will become rich. He says, buy from me white clothes to wear, not the clothes that are stained by your alliances with this lost world, but pure white clothes, washed perfectly clean in the blood of Jesus. And then you'll be covered, not naked, and buy from me salve for your eyes so that you You'll not be blind to the true condition of your life. But you'll be able to see what God has for you. And see what God truly wants for you. And notice there's only one place you can get this. You can't go down to Walmart, Meijer, any place like that and get any of these things. Jesus says, buy from me. And what's the cost of this refined gold? This perfectly white, these perfectly white clothes, this therapeutic eye salve, the cost is you. All of you. 100% of you. Now, you might think that Jesus is being rather harsh here. He's saying things that hurt my feelings. First of all, I don't think Jesus cares if he hurts your feelings, but he has a reason for that. And verse 19 says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus loves you right where you are, but he's not willing to leave you right where you are. He doesn't just want part of you. He wants all of you. So he says, be earnest and repent. Repent means to turn around, quit being self-sufficient. Quit thinking that you can run your own life. That you can have God as kind of like a little ornament back here and you can do your own thing and people look at you and they see the ornament and they say, oh, there's God there with him. He must be a good one. That's not how it works. God is not an ornament out there. God is a change maker in here. He wants to come into your life. He wants all of you, every single bit of you. Whatever you're holding back from God... You say, God, I'll give you everything but that. That is your God. Because that thing is more important to you than your God. I can remember the day that I knelt at the front of the old sanctuary here at Gospel Center and I uh, gave God everything. Boy, was that painful. Painful. I thought salvation was painful, confessing all my sins and admitting how rotten I was. I can remember kneeling there, and, and God said, uh, I want everything. It's okay, God, you got it. He said, I want your family. I said, now, wait a minute, God. We may have to come back to that one. So God said, I want your, all of your wealth. I had no wealth. So that was an easy one to give up. God said, what about your family? Whew, let's come back to that one, God. He said, I want your future. And I didn't know what the future held, so I figured God could hold on to it better than I could. So I said, okay, you got that. What about your family? What else, God? And God and I kept bargaining there for a long time until I gave him everything. That's a decision I've never regretted. God wants all of you. God doesn't want you stuck in the second chair. He wants you in the first chair. Maybe you've never experienced the power of God in your life. I have. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. And repent. He offers this wonderful invitation in verse 20. He says, here I am. I'm standing at your door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So this morning, if you find yourself in that third chair, you need to come. Come to God and repent of your sins. If you find yourself in the second chair, you need to come and reevaluate your life. And say, God, I'm not satisfied with just the power of that you experience, that my parents experienced. I want power in my life. I want to surrender myself completely to whatever you have. You need to reevaluate yourself and repent of your complacency. If you find yourself in the first chair today, then you may wish to come and recommit yourself to all that God has for you, to all that God is calling you to do. So if Jesus is knocking at your heart's door today, just come. First chair, second chair, third chair, The is open, you can come. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for this word that tells us that you're not pleased with us sitting in the third chair or even in the second chair. You want us in the first chair. So, Lord, today, right now, as you're knocking on people's hearts door, I pray, Lord, that you would Just help them to come and do whatever you called them to do. And whatever happens today, we just give you the praise. In your name we pray, amen.